Welcome to the Millionaire Mindcast, where we broadcast weekly interviews with millionaire minds from across the globe to empower you on your journey of unlocking a rich and fulfilling life. It's time to unleash your millionaire within. Now, here's your host, Maddie A. What's going on, guys? Maddie A here. Welcome into today's show. Today, we're going to be talking to my guest, Garrett Moore, founder and CEO of Agoras about his mission for solving America's elusive housing crisis and how he and his company are going about disrupting a multi-billion dollar archaic construction industry, a building industry, and how they're building a billion dollar company in the process. Garrett has a really cool story. Previously a quarterback at Stanford University after achieving a degree in mechanical engineering at Stanford, uh, and despite an early desire to jump right into Silicon Valley, Right after graduation, his passion to serve led him to San Diego to become an officer in the Navy SEALs. During this time, he also selected uh, to become an Olmstead Scholar, which is kind of similar to a Rhodes Scholar, if you're familiar with what that is. And after learning Hebrew from scratch, he earned his master's degree in cybersecurity at Tel Aviv University in Hebrew. This dude is an absolute badass, super high energy, full of value. And, you know, living there in Startup Nation in Israel, he learned another critical lesson that he noted, never underestimate the power of a small group of committed people to change the world. And that's exactly what he is doing with Agoras. We talked about his journey of entrepreneurship and kind of how he got started in entrepreneurship and this business endeavor specifically to scaling this company, to hiring and building teams, to raising capital and many of the lessons that he learned when taking on outside capital to fund your business, to the leadership lessons that he learned from the Navy SEALs, from Jim Harbaugh while playing at Stanford University, and really how all of those things have translated into building wealth building a business, building a lifestyle that ultimately he dreamed of. And this is all applicable to you and your journey and how you can take some of these lessons and apply them in the own unique ways of your own journey. And the importance that he talked about in terms of velocity when it comes to capital, when it comes to building the right teams and the execution, we even got to dig into some time on his predictions around the economy, the housing crisis, and really what some of the trends and things to keep an eye out for, his favorite investment vehicles, all kinds of great stuff. So before we dive in, if you are new to the show, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss another episode. And don't forget to check out the show notes at millionairemindcast.com for this episode where you'll find a show recap as well as all the links and the resources shared in this interview. And last but not least, if you guys enjoyed this uh, conversation between Garrett and myself, all I ask is be sure to share it with a friend on social media. And most importantly, just take 60 seconds and leave a five-star review in iTunes or whatever platform you enjoy listening to this content on. Uh, This is something that we do out of a pure passion and labor of love to bring more value to entrepreneurs and to wealth builders that are looking to unlock their definition of a rich life. So without any further ado, I don't wanna waste any more time. Thanks for tuning in today. And let's dive into today's interview with Garrett Moore of Agoras right after this quick message from today's show sponsors. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's show sponsor. Are you struggling to close deals? Cold outreach can be a slow and brutal process. And in many scenarios, it's just wasting the time of both the buyer 
and the seller, especially when business owners who are trying to find qualified buyers are using inaccurate and outdated data. But it doesn't have to be this way. With LinkedIn Sales Navigator, your organization can overcome these challenges by leveraging this amazing technology and platform that translates comprehensive, high-quality buyer data into real-time insights and sales. These deeper insights empower sales reps and teams to adopt the habits of top performers, which leads to much better outcomes like build and bigger pipeline with real customers leading to higher win rates and conversions, and of course, larger deals and paydays all around. We call this deep sales, and LinkedIn has built the first deep sales platform with the next generation of LinkedIn Sales Navigator. Right now, our Millionaire Mindcast family has an amazing opportunity to try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com forward slash mindcast. That's linkedin.com forward slash mindcast for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com forward slash mindcast and get started. Well, I'm excited to welcome to the show, Garrett. What is up, brother? What's going on, Matt? How are you? You know, I mean, you're 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 flying into my town here in a, in a few hours. <laughs> you're going up to Tahoe. I'm a little bit jealous, man. So it's a hard life, you know, balancing my, my my family's up in Tahoe right now for the summer, and I'm a bachelor in San Diego. But two of the best places in the world, like I cannot complain. Yes, yeah, we are. We're definitely, you know, I don't know how you feel about California politics, but we'll just leave that aside. And and it, with that aside, it's hard to argue and beat how beautiful California is year round. Uh Part of the way you know you live in the best state is when everybody else tries to hate on you and tries to tell you why it's wrong. Every state's got its foibles. Like, don't get me wrong, California is not perfect, but no, nobody's arguing that that California is not, you know, an incredible place to live. Like, we we enjoy the world's preeminent geography and economy. Like, it's uh, it's it's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well, dude, I'm excited. Anytime I get to talk with someone that is really innovating and, and, and transforming, uh, spaces, ideologies, you know, industries. Um, I'm always very interested in how they're attacking and approaching and really have covered the ground that you guys have been able to cover in the construction industry, which has been a very archaic industry, uh, very old school mindset. Um, and, it's a it's a challenging industry to to win at a at a really high level in and obviously with technology coming in to play in all industries now and you know this kind of you know 2020 doing what it did um to you know the psychology and also to just true logistics and mechanics of certain industries and spaces I- I'm really excited to talk about what you guys are doing with Agoris but um why don't you back up for us a little bit and, you know, tell us where did your entrepreneurial journey start? So, uh, I, I grew up in Arizona. Uh, dad was a high school teacher. Mom was a flight attendant, loved playing sports and like, you know, grades was a big issue. They're just kind of like, uh, curious, always trying to learn, et cetera. So both of those collided, got a chance to play football at Stanford. Uh, absolutely loved it. But what position? I, uh, I was quarterback. QB. Okay. Were you yeah, getting field time or what? No, because you quickly get there and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm an imposter. What am I doing here? Everybody is so much more talented because it's just natural leveling up in life where you think you're good in high school and then you just open up a larger pool. Yeah. It was an incredible experience though. 
Um, got to play for Jim Harbaugh my last year, which was which is really uh, eye opening and kind of um, really kind of started to plant some seeds on on my leadership journey and my growth. Nice. But I'm a team sports guy. I absolutely love that camaraderie, that competitiveness of the team, and so. You know, I'm seeing my sports career quickly come to a, a close because you just can't keep playing at the next level. Tap dabbling in the business world, kind of just not not really feeling it, and um, kind of had a transformational experience. A good buddy of mine from high school ended up committing suicide, and it kind of took me down a reflective path of what am I doing with my life? I want to matter. I want to, I want to pursue a cause that matters. And so I was working at McKinsey at the time, and I said, okay, enough is enough. I'm not happy here. So kind of did an about face and decided to go join the Navy. And in that process of thinking about the military and special operations, I came to fall in love with the SEAL community down in San Diego. And I was like, that's the, that's the professional sports team I want to be a part of. Mm. And so I absolutely uh, just uh, was enamored with the brotherhood and the camaraderie. So uh, put my name in the hat, went down, uh, made it through training, became a SEAL, spent uh, 12 years in the SEAL teams, the usual kind of a uh, lot of time in the Middle East just a, a phenomenal experience as, to grow as a young man and as a young leader. Um, but uh, married, had my, I was on three kids at this point, kind of just that life is starting to catch up with me. And I went to go build a house. I did, I did my undergrad in mechanical engineering. So I, I kind of have a, a physical world bent, but I thought just stupidly, so naive. I was like, oh, this will be just fine. And I remember I was overseas in the Middle East trying to track down an electrician for my wife. She's like, nobody's at the job site. Why is it? And I was like, that is it. I'm going to get out of the military because I'm so upset with the way that this industry is, is working and the, the personal pain points. I, can't, I cannot tolerate this inefficiency. I've got to tackle this problem. So, sorry, long, long answer to a short question, but I kind of had a weird circuitous path that brought me to this point where now I am super fired up about construction and construction technology and righting this wrong, so to speak. Yeah, dude. I, I always find, right? I mean, some of some of the greatest businesses and really, what do they say? The father of innovation is problems, right? Yep. And it's like the beauty of our, our world is, you know, there's always problems. And as things innovate, more problems, you know, come to light. And then we innovate again to solve problems. And it's it's a beautiful thing, right? And some industries have taken longer to innovate than others. Yes. So where did you start when you decided to, you know, tackle this idea of agoras and for maybe those that don't know what agoras is what you guys do how would you explain it or how do you explain it to people that go garrett tell us about your business yeah it's uh it's a little bit tricky to explain but i I think the best way i describe it is we're trying to build a technology that does to construction what tesla did to detroit old complacent outdated technology you know an internal combustion engine and People feel like, oh, I know what an electric car is. That's that's drab. That's boring. That's a Prius. That's whatever. And really needing to reshape that narrative for them and saying, no, no, no. This is the future. This is the future because we need this as a planet. And so the 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 big perk, the, the big BHAG or the why for us is because construction is, you know, cumulatively since 2008, we're, we're underwater about five and a half million units from the re- residential side. Yep. And we're never going to get out of this debt. So of course, housing prices are going up and interest rates are only making that worse. And so this is this is a generational problem. Like you and I are going to be talking about construction and housing for the next decade. And I yeah. think that was never the previous case, but the dip in 2008 was so bad that you would need the top 100 largest builders in the country to double capacity for the next decade to get out of this hole. Wow. So it's, it's a big problem. And so we're trying to look at this kind of big, staid, complacent industry going, 
how can we move the needle? Just being a better builder in, in, in my backyard is not gonna, not gonna do it. We need to build a transformational technology where our, our country can get back up onto step and can be the world leader in industrialized construction. Right now, we're behind Europe and Japan and everybody else. So I take that as a personal affront to my inner American that other people are out innovating us. Yep. So our, what gets me out of bed in the morning is, is really helping kind of uh, lead and push this industry in a, in a kind of uh, generation-skipping way. Why are we getting out innovated? Just curious from your perspective. Okay, so there's, there's a lot that goes into this. I'm going to get on my soapbox and give you my personal opinion. Please. Uh, I, I believe that uh, the best and brightest minds in the country right now the, you know, think of the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons, all the, all the big tech companies. They look at probably justifiably construction as this kind of blue collar plebeian industry that's, that's never going to change. So it either can't be changed or it's not worth changing. And so you've got this chasm where the, the guy that's putting boot on the table for his family, he's got a white pickup truck and a skill saw and he's just building houses. He's not thinking artificial intelligence and robotics, et cetera. And then the folks in Silicon Valley aren't thinking about the job site or they're looking for an easy fix that's just a, a software app that's going to somehow fix this problem. And so you got this huge chasm where you kind of have to put a fo- foot in both the blue collar and the white collar worlds to connect those because both needs the other side deeply. Yep. Yeah. I, I mean, it does. It seems like I'll use it for my industry in the hotel industry, which has been somewhat of an archaic industry as well. Done this, yeah. we'll just say done the same way. When I say archaic, right? I, I mean, my context, I guess, would be is just done the same way for so long, lacked innovation. And the beauty is technology is somewhat, you know, becoming the catalyst that allows for that innovation, but getting those dots to connect and fuse properly in a synergistic way. There's a transition, right? From the op side to the consumer side to everything in between. And so what I'm hearing from you guys is Agoras is really bridging the gap between those those two sides. Yeah. And I think there's probably a generational component to this as well, where you've got a retiring workforce that was kind of Gen X. So they came of age without technology and it's time to pass the baton to the millennial or Gen Z folks that grew up with technology in their hands. Yep. And actually, just for me personally, uh, I have a foot in kind of both generations because I'm kind of on the cusp. And I think there's, you, oftentimes to disrupt a problem that's this large, you need some tailwinds. You need some help from the government or or uh, just kind of society writ large. And I think we're seeing some of that, which is huge decline in labor. Yep. And therefore, the necessity goes up of like, well, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. So um, I, uh, I don't know where I was going with that, but we we're talking about... Um, sort of ramble a little bit. You, you guys, just, yeah, no, I mean, you guys just connecting the dots with Agoras. So take take us back real quick to you have this idea, this problem that was yes. you know, bothering you. Where where'd you start? Because Agoras is a big company now. Well, I think I started with the recognition of I have no idea what I'm doing. I know what wrong looks like. I'm coming home to it, or soon to be home to it every night. All right, so let's unpack it. And I think where um where I feel uh, blessed and fortunate is that I actually came in with no preconceived notions. So I've got a basic understanding of engineering and then I'm transitioning from world-class dynamic small team problems. So that's kind of all I've got going for me at this point, but I have a blank whiteboard in front of me. So I can look at this with, with hopefully fresh eyes. So I kind of pull the thread on this, do some traveling around the world, uh, dive in deep and research a bunch. And, and I'll kind of fast forward to the core thesis, which is the American 
physical landscape. And the American buyer is very different than other parts of the world. And so there's something in us that's got an an American cowboy aspect, which is I want my home to look different. I want to, I want to be that, that, uh, that trailblazer, that maverick, that whatever. And so we have a tremendous variance in building codes, in uh, actual construction styles, architectural styles. There's so much latitude across the country. Yeah. That causes a tremendous amount of fragmentation and variation. And so in that context, for an American buyer, a lot of people have tried to approach prefabrication and say, hey, look, Matt, I built you a good cube. Live in this cube. And, you know, your wife's like, mm, no. And so, like, that's kind of the volumetric or the modular approach that says, here, you can build whatever you want as long as it looks like this cube. And so we said, okay, no, no, no. We got to start from scratch. Let's build a software that gives you all of that unlimited creative freedom that an American wants. I want my roof to look like this and my porch to look like this. We can use software and technology to digest all that complexity and break it down into and make it simple. And so at the core... The core of what we did was we started a, a software. It's not a software that we sell. It's a software that we use. And that software, essentially, uh, the cheesy analogy I use is you send it a picture of the Death Star. And then it tells you, okay, all right, here's how many Lego bricks you need. And this is the orientation. And this is how you build it. But then when you reassemble it, you had all the latitude and simplicity or all the design freedom that you wanted of this picture. So that's essentially what it does. You send it a picture of a ADU, single family, multifamily, it could be a hotel. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. If you can build it out of timber, the software takes that, digests it into a, a batch of zeros and ones, and then it exports it wirelessly to our factory. And then in a factory environment, when you start looking at a robot, they're dumb. Just tell them what to do, where to put the nail, where to put the cut, and they'll do it every single time fast and efficient, but they need data to feed them. And so really connecting both of those worlds is the core competency of what we did. Then when that happens on a manufacturing floor, if you can imagine in your head a, a Toyota line or a Tesla line, an automotive assembly line where you're, you're just kind of extruding and going down the floor, that's essentially what we do. So we assemble as 2D panels, and those panels get built on this assembly line, and then you get shipped like IKEA furniture. And then at the job site, you can now reassemble this home quickly at, at the job site. So essentially, it's it's uh, it's a giving you all the benefits of custom design and architectural freedom with all the benefits of offsite automated manufacturing efficiency. Dude, I love it. Now, when you were first starting out, right? Like how how did you go about, you know, robots are cheap. Building materials aren't cheap. Labor is not cheap. Software is not cheap, right? So talk to us about the mechanics of how you went from idea to inception and, you know, launch and optimization. And, you know, what have been the challenges of being a business owner that, you know, how, how, how large are you guys now? If you don't mind me asking. Uh-huh. Uh, we're at, uh, now 65 people. So definitely getting up there a little bit. We got our first factory in San Diego, um, basically tr- trying to scale up as fast as we possibly can. Cause there's so much demand. We just can't build fast enough. And so, right. uh, it's, uh, there's, there's no shortage of market size. It's really just getting our internal operations and our fundamentals tight before we keep scaling up. Yeah. Yeah. You guys obviously want the foundation poured strong because growing yes. too fast can be a danger too, right? So how, what was your process of, was there cap raising, self-funding, you know, how, how did you grow this team and this vision into what it is today? I think like, like most of your listeners, when, when you're an entrepreneur at heart, you just kind of want to get your hands dirty and you want to figure it out. And it's not glamorous. And you look back and you're embarrassed by your, your first versions and kind of the stuff <laughs> that you did. But a lot of this was, I'm not a construction guy, so I got to go figure this out. So the first house we built, 
I just kind of figured out how to become a framer. I was the crane operator and the truck driver and all things that like OSHA would lose their mind over. And probably now we're more mature. We should never have done from an insurance perspective, but you just, you know what? I gotta, I gotta get my hands dirty and figure it out. Yep. So we, uh, we just kind of scrapped together our first project. We took out an SBA loan, collateralized it against our houses. So my co-founder and I just kind of the, the usual, just kind of like, Hey, you figure it out. And then eventually you get enough data points, raised our first angel capital, and then somebody's like, oh, I see something here. And then pretty soon it snowballs. And then we raised institutional money from uh, Toyota, uh, Blackhorn, some hedge funds on the East Coast. Um, so we, it kind of like starts to morph. And all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, oh man, there's a lot of people here. This is a real business. This is a real company. We're actually going to do this. This is not just you and your buddy scrapping stuff together and, and figuring it out. So that has probably been the most enjoyable part of this process. Like, yes, at the end of the day, I, I want to make money. But really what gets me so excited is tackling a complex problem with a group of smart, wonderful people that I love to work with. And there's nothing better than that. So you've talked a lot about leadership. I mean, being a part of the SEALs, right? Like you have to be a one leader of yourself. You also have to be able to lead and work alongside other badasses, right? So yeah. talk about how some of those, what leadership lessons or qualities have translated best to you back into your business that other people could model after? You can't, you can't pretend to have any poignant nuggets of wisdom that, I mean, it's, it's the old adage, uh, smart people learn from their mistakes, really smart people learn from other people's mistakes. So everything I've learned, I stole, borrowed from somebody else. Like, I don't have an original thing on my head. That said, I think <laughs> one of the things that's uh, really got seared into me from SEAL training is the value and importance of teamwork and team when you're when you're going when you're going through something. So, as an example, uh, and actually uh, Jim Harbaugh taught me this as well, and it kind of was reinforced. One of the greatest ways to lead through suffering is to be focusing on other people. And when you're focusing on other people, two things happen. They see you when, when they know it hurts, when they know you're at your worst and they see you focusing on them and your team when there's a struggle. And the secondary benefit is when you're focused on other people's problems and pain, you don't get to focus on your own. And so as you're growing a, a, a young company, there's so many things to worry about and stress about and kind of look in the mirror. And, and I think that muscle memory translate where it's like, you know, no, let's focus on the team. Let's focus on the customer. Let's focus on the problem we're, we're solving. And I think that's been uh, tremendously helpful. The other aspect that I think that, that's been really important that kind of came out of the SEALs is just part of leadership is just being out in front and, and leading by example and doing it yourself. And I think that's really helped as the company has grown and, and the team sees me being willing to get my hands dirty and repair the machines and, and jump out into the factory line with them, et cetera. It's a... Uh, you know, it's, it's another cheesy old adage, but uh, people have to know that you care before they're going to care what, what you have to say about them or yep. for them. Yeah. So uh, I guess the, the best way to categorize my approach to leadership is, is a lot of servant leadership. And by pouring in and building the team, it makes leadership easy because then you're just sitting back and just people are rowing and crushing in their respective lanes. Absolutely. You talked about you know, the cap raise journey and, you know, going, going from you're smiling. Cause I, I know I've been through that. I've, I've had good experiences. I've had very heart wrenching or challenging experiences as well. And I'm always curious, right? Cause at the end of the day, you know, if you ever decide Mr. or Mrs. Listener that you're going to take on capital, there is a lot of hooks that go along with that. Right. And there's pros and cons to it. 
But the second you decide to take someone else's capital, whether it's in a real estate investment deal, whether it's for your business, it changes the game. And so I'm curious on some of the lessons that you learned going through that journey of, hey, I want to scale. We need to scale. We want to go bigger. We want to go further. We want to have a bigger impact. But a big piece of that, you know, is uh, putting Benjamins in the gas tank. So yeah, what was your guys' mindset on why instead of bootstrapping and or or why you took it when you did and and some of the things you learned along the way? So there's a couple of facets to that. One was I'm so passionate about solving this problem that I would my passion for the problem and solving it quickly trumped my desire for for hoarding ownership. Ooh, so I, I would that. much I would much rather be uh, a small owner of a massive movement than a massive owner of a small movement. And so that's the difference between kind of small business and a startup. Small business, you get to own 100%. And it's it kind of tends to stay so small. Startup land is, yeah, I want to be a 10%, 20%, 30% owner of something that is absolutely massive. And so that, cap, that capital helps fuel growth and speed in exchange for ownership and oversight, which is one of the challenges you know, you've described. I think... I, the two of the biggest lessons that I learned going through the process, the first one was persistence. Somebody told it to me late in the process, but they're like, don't even give up until you've had a hundred pitches. Like it just, it's part of like, it's, it's, it's part of the process. You will not strike gold on your first one. So just don't quit. Yeah. Simple as it sounds like just keep your head down and keep pitching. Yeah. And then the, the second aspect was, and I, I stumbled in this by dumb luck, not by talent uh, man, having the right capital partners, it's like it's like getting married. If you get married to the right woman or the right man, it's a tremendous blessing and it's tremendously life-giving, et cetera. But if you get married to the wrong one, it makes life that much worse. Capital was the same way. And so we have an outstanding batch of partners that are equally as passionate about industrialized construction, manufacturing, innovating in the space. I look back now and go, man, the, 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 the people I stayed up praying that they would invest in us would have been absolute train wrecks if we had done that because they were not the right partner. They were not the yeah. right passion and alignment of vision. So it's easy for me to say this on the backside of having raised capital, but my my advice to my younger self would be, don't get so caught up in needing capital that you take capital from the wrong source because you would regret it, Garrett. Like it's, it's, it's worth scrapping and staying without capital than taking the shiny object when, you're, when your gut says, I don't know if these are the right partners. Are you interested in boosting your income by an extra $50,000 this year? If so, you're going to love what I've got in store for you. I am beyond excited to officially announce an incredible opportunity to join me in my exclusive mastermind, which will include myself and 25 other hand-selected investors who are actively pursuing commercial real estate in 2024 and want to be held accountable to making sure they buy their first or their next commercial real estate investment property that will net them a minimum of $50,000 a year. This mastermind group will not only teach you how to do that, how to find, how to analyze, how to structure and buy these types of commercial real estate investment properties, but you'll also have an opportunity to be a part of an intimate group of high achievers that are going to take your network and your resources to a whole nother level. But here's the catch. Like I mentioned before, this is exclusive. We're only selecting 25 ambitious individuals for our founding members group who are serious and ready to take that next step in their commercial real estate investing journey. So if you are ready to increase your passive income by at least $50,000 in the next year with commercial real estate investing, then this is your moment. These spaces are gonna fill up fast 
And trust me, this is the one and only time to be a founding member, which comes with some pretty special benefits. So head over to myfirst50k.com and submit your application now. Again, that's myfirst50k.com. You can head over there, check out the program, see everything that it entails, submit your application to join, and I can't wait to connect with you soon. Two crazy valuable nuggets there, right? Is, you know, deciding, I always tell people is like, you know, your business model based on what goals you're really trying to achieve, there is a, a, a perfect model for that. You know, you can either own a slice of a watermelon or you can hundred percent of a grape, right? Whatever your goals are, like you can find a model for that. And what I heard from you was, I love the way you, you, you frame that of like your passion and your desire to solve that problem was way bigger and trumped, you know, you needing to hoard the equity because it was more about the solution than it was about, right. The income or, or I guess the equity side of things. Yeah. And no judgment on either side. It's just for me, I didn't yeah. want to try and slog this out for 40 years. Like I want to move this needle now. Yeah. And, uh, I found that again, I'm slightly biased as you can tell by the approach that I took. I find that distributing ownership. So every single, we have 65 employees. Every single one of our employees has equity in the company. Oh, talk about that. So uh, my, um, my theory is in this business, in this market, we're kind of going to hit a home run or we're going to strike it. And if we hit a home run, it's a multi-billion dollar business. Yep. And in this day and age, talent is competitive, but really even more than just like that, I enjoy being a part of a team that's aligned. And when people have an ownership stake and an upside in the business, I think it gels a competitive team together in a really seductive way where it's not just about, I give you eight hours of my day and you give me a paycheck. It's now I'm a part of this. I'm an owner, even if it's a small ownership stake. And so what we did is we used a a technology platform called Cargo, which essentially helps you execute stock options. And we issued them to everybody at the company. Now, obviously you're factory operator is different than your executive and there's varying Mm -hmm. amounts, but uh, we're all in this together. We're going to sink or swim together. And if we, we strike, you know, strike it rich and it's, it's a fantastic success. We're going to go celebrate together. But that collective buy-in I think has been really, really helpful for us to build an incredible future. That's amazing, dude. And so you guys just carved out a certain pool of equity that you guys decided to, you know, whatever the, you know, metrics or mechanics of earning in and getting those shares that was yep. essentially, I love it. Yeah. Every time we raise new capital with new investors, we increase that amount because the team size is increasing. Yep. And so uh, to your point about the watermelon or the grape, all of our percentages, every time we raise new capital, bring on a new employee, all of our percentages get less. But if we collectively believe in that new, that new capital partner, that new employee, the size of the pizza pie should be getting bigger. Mm-hmm. And so then then your your overall value as a human being or, or the financial value is going up. You just have to get away and you have to like check your ego at the door going, I'm, I'm a minority shareholder. I'm, I'm a slice of this, but I'm part of a badass team that's, that's part of something. And um, it's also a good screening mechanism too. I think one of the things that that's our first uh, gauntlet that we run when we try and bring somebody is what's your level of humility? Mm. Are, are you are, are you going to be somebody that's that's uh, humble and workable and teamable and coachable, or are you going to come in and just you know want to have it your way, telling everybody what to do? And I think when you start to layer in some of these principles about shared equity and kind of the cultural values that we have, it serves as an intoxicant for people that like that, and a, a repulsive uh, mm-hmm. a repulsor for people that are like, no, 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 I want to be a one man show. Like that's that's not my cup of tea. 
Yep. No, absolutely. And you talked about kind of the importance of velocity. I, I think now more so than ever, because I think you, the way I've looked at it is, you know, if you want to be a small business owner and you want to ultimately, you know, you're okay being somewhat in the business and you want it to be yeah. more of a cash flow and a, a lifestyle vehicle for you, then that's, you know, there, there's a model for that. But then it's, if you're looking to build a business that doesn't rely on you showing up, right, has real culture, real org charts, you got, you know, uh, all of the, you know, workings of what a real company looks like, and you're looking to build to sell, it's a different mindset, it's a different strategy than maybe just the small business owner. And on your path that you're on, right, velocity is such a critical piece of this, because, you know, the industry is changing quickly, technology is changing quickly, the market and economy is changing quickly, right? So talk about your your mindset on the importance of, you know, quick and swift actions and how you guys have been able to navigate, you know, being able to adapt and pivot and be nimble, but also, you know, now that you're growing, how do you guys, you know, keep that? Uh, Obviously, again, I'm biased and near and dear to my heart. One of the reasons I believe SEAL teams are so dynamic, special operations in general, is the fact that you've got a highly uh, talented, interconnected small group of people that can outflank and outmaneuver larger forces. And so in this, I'm going to make a, a stretch of a parallel here, but in this, uh, the, in the world that we live in, in the warfare styles that we have, we don't live in kind of a force-on-force large army trench warfare like we did you know, 100 years ago. Yeah. I think startup startups are the same way. When you are able to be so fast and so dynamic, you can outmaneuver the more complacent status quo. And that's why you look at the AOLs and the CompuServes and all these other tech companies that got quickly outmaneuvered. Even Microsoft has struggled to kind of keep up because when you're that small and you can communicate and adapt to customer demands and market demands, you can you can really just um, stay at the bleeding edge and, and maneuver around kind of your heavy-hitting billion-dollar counterparts. Mm. Yep. Makes total sense. And now as you guys are at the place of your journey that you're at, what are, you know, some of the things that you guys are really focused on solving in your industry as a whole, just from your perspective, macro problem, micro execution, what are you guys continuing to really move the needle forward on? Uh, right now, the the biggest challenge we face is countering the fragmentation. So a typical home, as you know, or a project, you might have 35 or 40 different subcontractors. So it's, you know, the old adage, uh, my camel's a horse designed by committee. In the midst of that fragmentation, using technology to integrate is really, really key. And so our theory is, if you can get brilliant at distributing books, pretty soon you could throw in DVDs, you could start to throw in kids' clothes, you could start to throw in groceries, and pretty soon you're the largest company on the planet. Because you Mm -hmm. cracked your core competency, which at its core was distribution. So for us, that core competency is kind of digital integration of all these disaggregated elements that go into construction. Because if we can all sing off the same sheet of music, now technology can leverage that and really scale mm-hmm. it. Uh, but right now, it's just kind of all over the place. you got a PDF piece of paper there and a you know, subcontractor is doing their own thing over there, etc. So that's where we are right now. I think where the industry needs to go starts to look at, well, why do we build with the materials that we do? Why do we build? In the, and, and part of it is there was a, a logic to it 100 years ago. Yeah, yeah. But that logic may not matter in this current state, in this current environment. And so when I look at these two core issues, which is kind of uh, the sustainability and carbon footprint of construction, which is half of global carbon emissions, and then this kind of human existential issue where labor's going down, 
supply is going down and housing prices are going up and people are being squeezed. We can use technology to kind of pursue both of these, but we just we have to we have to be looking at a 10, 20 year play at the same time we're not losing sight of what we need to do next month. So you guys, let, let's say it's gonna happen because it's gonna happen. You guys solve the problem that you're looking and working on solving. What does housing construction development look like in 15, 20 years? I'll, I'll back in into that and say, I don't even think it's 10 or 15. I think by the end of this decade, okay, you will be able to go on our website or a technology platform website, and uh, you'll be able to design the house and uh, take keys 30 days later. Dude, that'd be sick. And that looks like offsite inspections, bypassing electronic uh, digital permitting. It looks like a, an interactive experience on a website where you can design and price in real time. I like those cabinets. I like that style or whatever. All of this is happening digitally. Boom, file goes out to the factory. It's getting built. That home is built in the factory in 24 to 48 hours. It's shipped to the job site. You've got some installation, a couple on-site inspections, some button up, and you're handing the customer the keys. And I say homes. I'm using homes loosely. This is everything that's like five stories and below timber construction. So it could be hotels. It could be apartments. It could be single-family houses. It could be backyard granny flats. That is what the future will look like of construction. Dude, that is so... I mean, you got my wheels spinning on how I can start building more hotels. I'm like, okay, what do we got here? You could turn it on because now you're worried about what's the market going to do in two years. What's my carrying cost? I have the ability to to seize opportunity. I don't want to be a developer. I want to go to the developers and say, guys, you tell me where you want to build and what you want it to look like. I'll use technology to get it for you tomorrow. So you guys are really, obviously, you're you're uh, in the construction space, but you guys are essentially a, a full tech company, yeah? We're a tech company that, that, that's got these, uh, these strappings of like Carhartt boots and jeans and blue collar like construction and manufacturing. But at the end of the day, we're a bunch of like nerdy construction technologists that are super passionate about this problem. Dude, I love it. I love it. So what, what, are, what are some of the things that you guys really need to solve over the course of the next couple of years in order for that 30-day reality by the end of the decade to come to fruition? I think it, it centers around, you mentioned the foundation, excuse the pun, the fundamentals of preparing for scale. So you've got a huge market. You, you could not outgrow this market. It's massive. Well, what is your what does your technology stack look like? Okay, doing you know we're going to do 150 or 200 homes this year. Okay, cool, but like that's a, a rounding error at scale. So what are the processes that are going to break as you start to ramp up? Human processes, yeah. technological processes, etc. So we're obsessing over all that kind of not very sexy stuff because the devil is in all those little details. Like the technology works, the product is there, it's passing inspections. I think it's a lot of um, housekeeping and foundation building to b- b- before we kind of get that hockey stick inflection. Yeah. Yeah. Cause obviously doing 200 homes is one thing, but doing, you know, 20,000 homes a month might be something yes. different, right? It, exactly. And that's, that's the mindset we go into is like, okay, is this solving today's problem or is this something that would still work at that level of scale? So talk about, you've got your vehicle of business that you're passionate about. You're driving your, income, your wealth through, but what does it look like? What's your mindset and approach for, you know, how you're building wealth outside of your business? I'm the proud father. I married my childhood sweetheart and I've got three wonderful kids. They're, they're everything to me. Like 
at the end of the day, building the world's greatest business and my passion for this problem gets trumped if I'm missing those T-ball games and those dance recitals. Because that's, at the end of the day, when I'm only deathbed, I'm not going to look back and go, man, I wish I built two more houses. I'm like, man, I wish I had been there for my daughter when she had her first breakup. And she she needed me and I was on a, on a, tra- a traveling trip. So it's a never-ending balance. But, and I don't get it right. And I've got some debt to pay off from the time I missed for my kids' lives in the, in the military. But I think I look at this as if I raise this child, this company, I want this child to grow me. I, want, I like being the CEO, but if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, hopefully this company grows faster than I can scale up. Yeah. But if I'm always thinking about what's best for this child, what's best for this company, then eventually if it gets to the point where it's working so well, I start to get my, my time freedom back and my time balance because it's running well. The executives are crushing in their respective lanes. People are communicating well. We're adapting and, and, and seeing changes coming down the pipe. And it's just a well-oiled machine. And then at that point, I have the best of both worlds because I'm, I'm building a world-class organization. At the same time, I now have the ability to go, hey, babe, grab the kids. I want to go mountain biking or I want to go snowboarding today. Like, let's do it. And that, that balance, because I think... I, probably for a lot of your listeners, if I spent 24 seven as a stay at home dad, I probably would, I would be missing something. There's a professional ambition there. So it's not one or the other, but it's being balanced across my life in all sides, my spiritual health, my emotional health, physical health, financial health, keeping that balance is really ultimately where I think I get to that, you know, to your, to your millionaire mindset where it's like, that's what happiness and success looks like. And if you start to over-prioritize one of those pillars, it gets a little wobbly. Yeah. So how do you keep what, what, what frameworks I know, right? Like seals and, and most of my military peeps that, you know, I'm really close with, they're just, they're so disciplined. They've got frameworks, they've got regimens, they've got rhythms that keep them, you know, metaphorically bowling strikes and spares, you know, on the bowling alley of life or business. Like what are your bumpers on your metaphorical, you know, life and, and the balance that you keep? Uh, a couple of things. Um, on the personal side, it's doing whatever I can to look my kids in the eyes when they wake up and be the, you know, read them a story and put them to bed every night. So if I bookend that, I get maximum yield. Now I can mm-hmm. say I want to be there for dinner. And that's a really important thing for our family. But I have found that if, if my children grow up knowing that dad's going to be there when I wake up in the morning and dad's going to be there when I go to bed, it sets a really solid foundation of security where they're like, oh, I nice. am safe. I am, I am protected. I am loved and I'm valued. And it's meaningful time. It's not just like I'm running around, but it's like waking my kids up by rubbing their back or putting them to bed by praying over them and spending time reading stories and like asking them about their day. Cause that's when all the day stuff comes out. You find they start breaking down because, you know, there's an experience that they hadn't processed through. So those are, that's a, that's a routine. That's really, really helpful for me. Um, I would say the, the second one is uh, kind of waking up before my kids wake up and getting time with my wife. Cause that's the other thing that they can get compromises. You focus on the kids, you focus on work and your best friend and partner kind of just becomes a roommate instead of, you know, your, your lover and your best friend. So, uh, getting coffee with my wife in the morning before the kids wake up is another one of those like little routines where it's just, it's investing in that stability. Um, and then the other one I mentioned was, uh, dinner time is a big deal for me. I'll stay up really late in work, but I come home from work, uh, usually by six o'clock, eat dinner with the kids, get them down for bed, and then stay up as late as, as, as mm-hmm. necessary to, to, to finish the rest of the work. So on the personal front, um, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of one of the things that keeps me balanced on the spiritual front. It's just really trying to spend a, at least a solid 15 to, to 30 minutes every day, either praying or growing or reading a new book. That's, that's bending my, um, my bigger picture view of life and who I am, who am I, et cetera. 
Um, I would say on the financial side, this has been really, really tough for me, but one of the biggest kind of muscles I've had to exercise is not worrying so much about the amount that's in a bank account or where I'm going, but thinking about it like, man, if I was going to die tomorrow, I was going to die next month. Would I spend my money a little bit differently? Is there an experience that I'm not pursuing with my kids and my wife that I should be because I'm, I'm worried about the economy or I'm worried about something mm-hmm. else that's come down the road. And I've had to just grow in the ability to say, you know what? Money is, it's a tool. It's, it's, it's like air. It's not why you breathe. It is necessary to breathe. I get that. Mm-hmm. But using it to kind of fuel those experiences of what really, really matters with my family now, because these are years I'll never get back. So anyway, I'm, I'm kind of pontificating a little bit there, but that's, that's kind of my, my initial off the cuff view. Those are all beautiful. And, and, and I agree with, with so many of them. It, honestly, it sounds like you and I have some pretty similar routines and rhythms that, uh, you know, I'm not the sharpest, fastest or strongest, but I've, I've figured out the frameworks that keep me in my, my pockets of strength. And, you know, based on the priorities of my kind of totem pole of life and business, right. I allocate and align my activities and my calendar to reflect what those priorities are. And so just staying disciplined enough to know when I'm in those lanes and, you know, I, I call it building a bunker, you know, uh, yeah. around whether it's certain days or certain themes or certain activities or rhythms, like really building a bunker around those things and just staying disciplined and not let anything snipe you out of the bunker. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a great way to describe it. I love it. So with your guys's focus going forward in the business space with your wealth building, with your family, what are some of the things that you're concerned about that you're maybe thinking a little bit more about leaning into more conversations, maybe building a moat around, you know, skating to where the puck is and trying to get in front of things. What does that look like for you? It's a great question. I, uh, I'm an eternal optimist. Nice. And I I love, um, I love our country. We we do stupid stuff just like anybody else. Like as as a nation, you know, we we've got our foibles. But I am um, more on the camp of America stood its ground for two hundred and fifty years, give or take. Like, yes, there's going to be new challenges, and yes, we've got inflation, and yes, we've got all these foreign policy issues. Like, there's there's going to be a never ending uh, batch of uh, of drama. Yeah. But in the midst of that, kind of betting on the country and betting on our, 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 our citizens and our nation and kind of the trajectory. So I'm a very um, kind of just play the long ball game. So a highly formative uh, article for me, and I'm sure you've probably heard or your, your, your listeners have, it's uh, Warren Buffett's Million Dollar Bet. Have you ever heard of this? Oh, yeah. 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 So taking that mindset towards a whole bunch of other things. So the idea that when you start thinking you're smarter than everybody else and you start to game the system, that's where you run into issues. Instead of just picking a core thesis and betting on it, hey, I'm betting on American innovation, or I'm betting on railroads, or I'm betting on whatever. And so for me, that core bet is uh, I'm betting on America's ability to adapt and innovate to the problems that come. That could be Chinese aggression. That could be climate change. That could be pick a topic. Yep. I fundamentally believe there's something unique baked into the American psyche that's going to solve those problems that come. And so for, for me, kind of A, taking a long approach and then B, in the midst of that, just kind of playing a longer game in my investment strategies for stocks, investment strategies for real estate, et cetera, and not chasing the shiny object of cool, there's money to be made in NFTs. Like, all right, great. If, if you can make money that fast, you can probably lose money. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little bit old school in that, despite the fact that I'm a, I'm a tech person. 
Um, but I would say that's just kind of generally my approach is, is, uh, is, is in all things, moderation usually treats you right. Yeah. Well, we talk about on the show a lot. I always say, you know, the best dishes are always made in the crock pot, not the microwave. And don't get me wrong. You know, I pace in front of the microwave. I'm like, I want this dish quick, man, spit it out. But when you think about historically, all the, all of the best things, wealth, relationships, your health, it's like you said earlier, it's the persistence and the stamina to stay the course, no matter what challenges or hurdles get put in front of you, surrounding yourself with the right people or, you know, the right team, right. Yeah. And, and, and having a clear vision on what that North star is that you're tracking towards and just doing the small consistent daily activities over an extended period of time that really just aren't sexy until all of a sudden you've done them long enough. They've compounded and all of a sudden now they become sexy, right? Yes. Well, it's interesting. You bring up kind of those, those daily habits and disciplines. One of my favorite phrases that I learned from the SEAL teams that just stuck with me to the day, this day is an amateur trains until they get it right. Professional trains until they can't get it wrong. And so one of the things you learn very quickly on is, is your, your body, your life becomes a reflection of the habits and the disciplines that you've baked into it. And you learn this really, I think the first time you get into your, in, into your first gunfight where you all of a sudden find yourself doing things that you, you lost all conscious thought, like your, your, your lizard brain kicks in and you're, you're thinking, about, but you're doing highly complex, very disciplined actions with a weapon or a radio or whatever it is. And so I look at that, that kind of corollary transitioning to life. If during the day-to-day, I'm continually beating the drum of a discipline or a routine, when everything goes to hell in a handbasket, my kid gets sick, uh, there's a death in the family, the market falls down, whatever it is, I will default back to the way I've conditioned my body and my habits and routines to act. And so if I wait until I'm in a gunfight to start thinking about training, it's going to fall apart. And so it's the same thing I think in life. If I'm, if I'm just hoping that I'm going to have the the perseverance when it gets tough without having laid the foundation, hope is not a great strategy. Don't be smoking that hopium, bro. (laughs) Garrett, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. I've loved having you on the show. I know a lot of people are going to want to check out all, I mean, guys, you got to check out their website, agoras.com. I mean, we'll, we'll link everything up in the show notes. Um, on Garrett's episode, like what you guys are doing is badass, dude. And like, I, I obviously, I'm in real estate, I'm in development and construction. I'm excited to actually talk to you a little bit more about the, the hotel side of things um, right as, as well as multifamily. But with that being said, if people want to learn more, they want to connect with you more, they want to follow more of what you guys are putting out, where's the best place for them to do that? Hit me up on LinkedIn or, or go to the website and kind of learn. Uh, we are always, uh, this is a rising tide floats all boats. It's not winner take all. I want I want a lot of, I want a spotlight on this, this problem and process because my hope is that collectively enough people start to get excited about it. So I'm always uh, super passionate and evangelistic about the, the industrialized construction gospel and looking to uh, kind of connect with people that are looking to innovate and kind of break some eggs along the way as well. Garrett, thanks for coming on the show, man. Appreciate you. My pleasure, Matt. Well, that wraps up this week's episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that interview. And if you did, all I ask is that you share it with somebody else who maybe needs to hear this today or that could gain some value from something that was talked about or discussed in today's interview. You just never know one piece of information, a conversation, a tool, a resource can completely transform and change the trajectory of someone's life or their business. So if you get any kind of value or you wanna support the show, all we ask is that you help us organically get this in front of more people. Also, for those of you who are really looking to accelerate your wealth building journey and unlock more financial freedom, get more time back and just level up your life, your business, your finances, be sure to head over to therichlifeacademy.com to check out all the amazing products and resources that we offer to our Millionaire Mindcast family, whether that's 
one-on-one coaching with me, courses from our guests, all kinds of free content, downloads, checklists, upcoming event info on how you can connect with us live in person, all kinds of great valuable tools. You can get that over at therichlifeacademy.com. Last but not least, I always wanna know, who do you guys wanna hear me interview next? Let me know, shoot me a text at 844-447-1555. With that being said, until next time, keep investing in yourself and your wealth on your March to a million and beyond. Cheers, my friend.